When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, the host of Face the Nation. Our Whistle Stop today is the windowless studio of WMUR Manchester, New Hampshire. It's Sunday, January 19th, 1992, and five Democratic presidential candidates sit surrounded by black curtains. Paul Songus. Jerry Brown, Bob Kerry, Tom Harkin, and Bill Clinton. With 20 days to go before the primary, a poll has been released by the Boston Globe and WBZ-TV showing that Mr. Clinton is leading with 29%, followed by former Massachusetts Senator Paul Songus at 17%, and Nebraska Senator Bob Kerry is at 16%. Each man sits at their own desk in this dark black room. A plastic pitcher of water like the kind they use at Pizza Hut to serve the Dr. Pepper is on... Their desk. It looks like the most depressing telethon in history. They talk about the economy. They talk about the war on drugs. To give you a sense of how the politics have changed, Bob Kerry on the stump has been talking about using the military in America to fight the war on drugs. Bill Clinton has been essentially boasting about the fact that he has put people to death in Arkansas. But at the end of this debate, moderator Cokie Roberts, who's the only splash of color in the entire event. The men are in almost all gray and dark blue suits, and she's wearing a a blue shirt, which only matters because the entire thing has a kind of dark black somberness to it. She asks each candidate about the biggest threat to their electability in a general election. And she turns to Governor Clinton and says, quote, there is concern among members of your party about allegations of womanizing that Republicans would find somebody and she would come by late in the campaign and you would lose that all-important-to-the-Democrats woman's vote. There have been rumors about womanizing. Three days before the debate, the campaign got word that old stories of the governor's liaisons were going to surface. They tried at first to sort of laugh them off, then to shame the mainstream media into not covering these trashy stories. Finally, they deployed Hillary Clinton, the candidate's wife, in New Hampshire to answer the allegations on the stump. She said, is anything about our marriage as important to the people of New Hampshire as the question of whether they will be able to keep their own families together? The campaign was pretty confident that they put the stories behind them. And so, in response to Cookie Roberts' question, Bill Clinton said this about his womanizing. There may not be an Arkansas miracle, but there are a lot of miraculous citizens in my state. And I live in a place like New Hampshire where... We know each other by our first names, and even your enemies uh, curse you out by your first name. Uh, I think it is highly unlikely, given the competitive environment in which I've been in, that you have anything to worry about on that score. Nothing to see here. The 1992 New Hampshire primary was a white-hot crucible that packed more Clinton drama into a small space of time than perhaps any episode in his or his wife's public life. And it is perhaps the most topsy-turvy primary of the modern era, 
Do you think I've loaded enough significance on it there? This was not a tortoise and the hare story like John McCain in New Hampshire beating George Bush in 2000 or a David and Goliath New Hampshire story like Hart defeating Mondale in 1984. It was not a contest like the 2000 Democratic primary where two well-matched rivals, Clinton and Obama, gutted it out to the end. This was a stomach-turning, undulating, up-and-down ride like on one of those campaign planes we fly on. First Clinton was up, then he was down, then he was up. We're still talking about the plane. And then finally, with no landing gear, the plane leaking oil, the jalopy skidded down the runway in an ugly mess of sparks, which looked gruesome but under the circumstances turned out to be a triumph. Bill Clinton, through perseverance and spin, two qualities that would become the hallmarks of his presidency, would turn a second-place finish in New Hampshire into a victory that would take him on to the presidency. The 1992 race wasn't supposed to be so promising for Democrats. George Bush's approval rating after the Gulf War was sky high. Prominent Democratic leaders like Mario Cuomo, Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas, Congressman Richard Gebhardt of Missouri had run from the race, sure that if they actually got in, they would lose. They were so reluctant that Saturday Night Live had one of their greatest skits ever. It was called Campaign 92, the race to avoid being the guy who loses to Bush. And it opens with an announcer saying, good evening, I'm Faye Sullivan of the League of Women Voters. Welcome to this, the first in a series of debates among the five leading candidates who are trying to avoid being forced by their party into a hopeless race against President George Bush. Most of them have already announced that they're not interested in the nomination, but each, of course, is under enormous pressure to be the chump who will take on the futile task of running against this very, very popular incumbent. For the rest of the skit, the Democrats held a debate in which they each tried to top the other in explaining why they were unfit to run against George Bush and why the other candidates would lose to Bush by less. The most famous line was at the very end of the skit in which the person playing Mario Cuomo simply said, I have mob ties. So the field that did run was considered to be like the B team or the C team. But by the early part of 1992, out of this motley group, emerged Bill Clinton as a genuine frontrunner. Newsweek at the time, the beginning of the year of 1992, said that he was garlanded with four-leaf clovers. Here's the Washington Post. If the buzz inside the Capitol Beltway can be believed, the Democrats may well have a candidate before they even have a real campaign. Governor Bill Clinton of Arkansas, by virtue of his early strength in organizing and fundraising, not to mention message-making and pundit-stroking, has become the hot candidate for the post-Cuomo period. New York Governor Mario Cuomo had been the great Democratic candidate in the wings, in much the way that Teddy Kennedy had long been the Democratic candidate in the wings, in much the way that Colin Powell was considered the Republican candidate in the wings. Mario Cuomo, of course, never ran. But now Clinton was taking the Cuomo mantle. He was a governor. He had this great ability on the stump. Clinton was doing so well, the New York Times ran this headline, media's frontrunner tag cuts both ways for Clinton. In other words, he was so far ahead, he now might face the problem of having the expectations being too high. The Times wrote, Clinton's new prominence has helped raise expectations that he will win the New Hampshire primary suggesting that he might pay a heavy price if he does not, just as Edmund S. Muskie and Walter F. Mondale did. You'll remember those names from uh, the 1972 race, Muskie winning but actually losing when McGovern did better than everybody expected, and then Mondale actually losing in 1984 to Gary Hart. 
Whistlestop is a lover of the New Hampshire primary, although personally a great fan of the people and place of Iowa. But New Hampshire has all of this crazy history. And it was the focus in 1992 because the Iowa caucuses, which had been a launching pad for candidates, you know, there are three tickets out of Iowa and then you go off to New Hampshire where it winnows it down. But in this case, Tom Harkin, the senator from Iowa, was running. So the Iowa caucuses meant nothing. He walloped the field by getting, I think, 72% of the vote. The real winnowing had to take place in New Hampshire. Clinton was on the rise, but... The wandering eye was a problem. It was in the elite class only in that early and mid part of January. One of those things that's talked about on the back of the campaign plane late at night at the Wayfarer bar, jokes were made about it, but it never breaks into the actual open. There's no cable at this point really to fill hours of conversation. There are no bloggers. It's all kept kind of inside the mainstream media bubble. But then it starts to break out. Cokie Roberts asks at that debate, and Mary McGrory, who was a columnist for the Washington Post, who was much read and widely read, wrote a piece after the rumors started breaking into the mainstream press. She talked to Senator Jean Shaheen, who would later become governor of New Hampshire and who now serves in the Senate. And Shaheen told McGrory that she had been a Hart supporter. And you'll remember that Gary Hart was undone by his extramarital liaisons. And so Shaheen was asked to join the Clinton team, but she declined over reservations about rumors about Clinton's personal life. So she signed on with Bob Kerry, the senator and war hero, explaining simply to McGrory, I've been there meaning she dealt with candidates who had been felled by their action pants. So the rumors are not going away. Clinton's answer in the debate doesn't stop them. The star tabloid prints rumors of liaisons with many different women. It is starting to take a toll on the Clinton campaign, and they launch an incredibly risky gambit. Mandy Grunwald, who is in charge of the media strategy for the Clinton campaign, begins conversations with Don Hewitt, the famous producer of 60 Minutes, about having the Clintons appear together on 60 Minutes before the Super Bowl, one of the most watched moments. And so here the Clintons were going to go on for 11 minutes before the big Super Bowl. The Clintons sit down together on a sofa across a coffee table from Steve Croft, the 60 Minutes correspondent. And twice while the interview is being taped, Producer Hewitt, kneeling off camera, urges Clinton to confess to adultery. It will be great television, he says. And I know television, but Clinton would not listen to Hewitt. On the central claim, which was that he had had a relationship with Jennifer Flowers, Clinton said that he'd barely had any relationship with her, sexual or otherwise. He said there's nothing out of the ordinary there. He talked about a case in which he was on the phone with Jennifer Flowers while, while Hillary was there and that she had merely been tarred by rumors and that he was giving her assistance on the phone about how to to manage these rumors of possible liaisons. But he said there was absolutely no relationship with her. Now, what about the other women? Well, he denied specific charges, but he did say that there had been a crisis in his marriage at one time, but he was vague about that. And he said that he had caused pain in his marriage, but that he and Hillary Clinton still loved each other. And they were showing that as they patted and held each other in various different ways during the course of the interview. So Croft kept pressing Clinton to make this admission about adultery, but Clinton wouldn't budge. You know, I have acknowledged wrongdoing. I have acknowledged causing pain in my marriage. I have said things to you tonight and to the American people from the beginning 
that no American politician ever has. I think most Americans who are watching this tonight, they'll know what we're saying. They'll get it. Again, Croft kept coming back at the Clintons, trying to get him to admit that basically he'd been an adulterer. And what then happens is a moment of real television, which proves something that candidates all forget, and some never believe in the first place, which is only when you're being asked probing questions, tough probing questions, does a candidate have a chance to respond with forceful answers, which then become memorable. It's like hitting off of a fast pitcher. The ball goes farther when you finally do make contact. And so the great moment of contact comes. I think most Americans would agree that it's very admirable that you have stayed together, that you've worked your problems out, that you seem to have reached some sort of an understanding and an arrangement. Um, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. You're, You're looking at two people who love each other. This is not an arrangement or an understanding. This is a marriage. That's a very different thing. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him and I honor what he's been through and what we've been through together. And, you know, if that's not enough for people, then heck, don't vote for him. Clinton later wrote he wanted to slug him, referring to Croft. The interview helped put Clinton back on track. In an ABC poll taken afterwards, 79% of the people questioned said that the press had no business poking into the private lives of the Clintons. At some point during the session, the very bright, very hot overhead lights, one of them came loose from the tape and fell. And it was directly above Hillary Clinton's head. And it came out later, a video of this. She like basically has to jump out of the way to keep from being hit. So there was this incredibly tension-filled moment. And adding to that even more so was the fact that while it was going on, this light almost comes down and smashes her on the head. They get through the ordeal, and Bill Clinton writes that he flies home and watches the show before the Super Bowl with Chelsea Clinton, his daughter. And when it was over, they asked Chelsea what she thought, and she told her father, I think I'm glad you're my parents. But that wasn't the end of it. Though it was considered a masterful re-grabbing of the narrative, two days later, Jennifer Flowers actually appears, this time at a press conference given in the Waldorf Astoria, in which she reiterates her claims. Yes, I was Bill Clinton's lover for 12 years. And for the past two years, I have lied to the press about our relationship to protect him. The truth is, I loved him. Now he tells me to deny it. Well, I'm sick of all of the deceit, and I'm sick of all of the lies. The tapes included some racy exchanges, which were played in the famous ballroom, in which Flowers detailed some of Bill Clinton's talents in the bedroom. But most important was the playing of the tape in which Clinton, or a voice that is supposed to be Clinton's, tells Flowers, if they ever hit you with it, just say no and go on. There's nothing they can do. I expected them to look into it and come interview you. But if everybody is on record denying it, no problem. The Clinton campaign took issue with whether this was Bill Clinton's voice. They pointed out that Flowers had been paid a great deal of money, which she had been. But it was seen as a death blow to the campaign. In the movie The War Room, which chronicles the rise of the Clinton campaign and ultimate success, Dan Payne, who is a political consultant in the Northeast, is quoted as saying, the friction in this is going to be too much for Clinton to survive. I think it's only a matter of days before he can get out, if not hours. This was such an issue for Bill Clinton because it wasn't just about the pursuit of 
purity in marriage. This was a question of electability. Clinton was seen as such a great candidate because he was a synthesis candidate. He was not too liberal. Some Democrats in New Hampshire were saying he was more like a Republican than a Democrat. But he was going to bring the party back, revive it from the doldrums of the Carter years. So his great talent was that he was electable. And so if he had a character issue, then he would lose in the general election when George Bush, who'd had this long marriage with this big family, would be able to use that against him. But then also it was in Clinton's answers, which had been so compelling on 60 Minutes, to then have them undone by this duplicity people could hear on the tape started the snowball rolling on the question of Slick Willie and basically that he could be talking to you and saying things to you that just weren't so. And there was proof that would come out later that the Jennifer Flowers story was having taking a toll on Clinton's electability, which Cokie Roberts had raised in that first debate in New Hampshire. A memo that would be published later, an internal memo in the Clinton campaign written by his pollsters, Celinda Lake and Stan Greenberg, called Focus Groups of Women Voters. And under the heading, Trusting the Man, it said, college women and younger women voters are a difficult problem, particularly as we move out of the South. Since Jennifer Flowers, these women have been more negative about Bill Clinton. They have ranked him significantly lower on being honest, trustworthy, having family values, and being politically expedient. We took a toll with these women voters who were introduced to us through the Jennifer Flowers episode. At the most fundamental and personal level, these women voters do not trust Bill Clinton, a politician they have barely heard of. They find it difficult to vote for a candidate that they do not trust at such an elemental level. As one woman concluded, it's an integrity issue that is hard to overlook. Their introduction to Bill Clinton through Jennifer Flowers has produced a screen that tends to block out other messages. It has also provided a powerful framework for interpreting other messages. It is easy for these women to see Clinton's commercials as slick, politically expedient, and, quote, saying all things to all people. So Clinton does what became known as a signature Clinton move, which both he then used throughout his career and which his wife has employed in her career as well, which is that in the face of scandal or attacks, he just redoubled his efforts. He went back to campaigning, arguing that the people of New Hampshire cared about other things, the things he'd been talking about at length and in detail, and that would help change their lives. He went out and campaigned against brain-dead politics of the left and the right that cared more about character assassination and tearing people down than coming up with ways to improve people's wages and their lot in life. The people of New Hampshire, he said, desperately want this election to be about them, their lives, their problems, their futures. They're trying very hard not to be diverted, and I'm going to do my best to support their efforts. Another time he said, I'm asking the voters of New Hampshire to achieve a level of sophistication no one else has ever asked of them before. He sounds a little like Newt Gingrich there. His argument was that they could overcome the scandal and support his list of programs and that that would be a sign of sophistication, that they could keep their eye on the ball. Clinton was talking about these problems that people were feeling and the polls showed just how much they were feeling it. When people were asked who benefited most from the Reagan-Bush policies, 82% said the rich. Nearly 60% said a Democratic president would care more about the needs of the middle class. And that question, who cares more about you, was a governing one and going to be a governing one in the general election. So on the one hand, Clinton is being assaulted from one side about electability. 
are his personal problems going to be used by Republicans in the general election? On the other hand, he is showing every day and in every campaign event that he has the key to pick the lock. If a key can pick a lock, a key just opens a lock. So he had the key to open the lock to an electorate that was screaming for answers to get out of the economic recession that had dragged Bush's super high poll numbers after the first Gulf War and were dragging him down. So Clinton was in his daily efforts able to show all the reasons that he was the right choice for a general election. He physically, day by day, hour by hour, could refute these charges, not by coming up with a better way to wiggle out of the accusations, but by showing an alternative version of himself that seemed appealing to voters and could make Democrats imagine him as somebody who could win in a general election. It's worth noting during the Paula Jones deposition while the president is in office, he admits that, in fact, he did have a relationship with Jennifer Flowers that started in 1977, although he says that it was not a relationship that lasted 12 years, as she claimed. So while Clinton is weathering the personal relationship storms, a second gargantuan one hits him. On February 7th, 11 days before the primary, the Wall Street Journal revives old charges that Clinton had dodged the draft. The charge was that he had pulled a bait and switch in 1969, avoiding the draft by promising to go into the ROTC, but then never actually going into the ROTC. The journal had two news sources that seemed politically motivated. But what added fuel to the fire was Clinton's totally implausible response, which is that he said he hadn't tried to game the system. In fact, that he put his name back into the draft after saying he would go into the ROTC because four of his friends had been killed in Vietnam and he wanted to go serve. People didn't find this plausible because he was totally against the war. So why would a person who was totally against the war in the face of new evidence that four of his friends had just been killed in that war suddenly do something to make it easier for him to be sent to go fight into that war. The charges put Clinton's campaign into meltdown, as his pollster Stan Greenberg put it. He dropped nearly 20 points in the polls in about 48 hours. One of the most damning new pieces of information is that the journal produced a letter that the 23-year-old Clinton had written in 1969 thanking an official for, quote, saving me from the draft, saying that it was the only way he could avoid it while still maintaining his, quote, political viability, unquote. So we have the character questions of the adultery, which then are compounded by his responses, which seem overly calculated. The 60 Minutes response seeming so authentic and so earnest and so true, but then the voice being heard on the Jennifer Flowers tape seeming so conniving, so slippery. Now in the draft situation, we see a 23-year-old letter that seems to suggest a pattern of duplicity and arrangement and shading and shifting. The Slick Willie characterization continues to come up more and more. And his opponents start to lay it on super thick. My problem is not with the evasion of the draft, said Bob Kerry, who was himself a decorated war veteran and who had lost his leg in combat. My problem is with the veracity of the statements themselves. They do not, in several areas, have the ring of truth. Later, when Clinton was president, Kerry would say that he was an unusually good liar. Tom Harkin said the last thing Bill Clinton needs is another story questioning his veracity. Paul Songus, who tried to stay above the fray, did what people who try to stay above the fray like to do, which is say they're trying to stay above the fray by keeping the fray alive. So he said, I hope the issue of the draft won't crowd out other issues. 
which is like saying, I hope that the issue of the draft won't crowd out our discussion of taxes and the draft won't crowd out our discussion of welfare and the draft won't crowd out the word draft in sentences like this one that have the word draft in it a lot to remind you that the issue of the draft is one you should be paying attention to. They threw Clinton's words back in his face in 1988. Clinton had been one of those who had opined that Dan Quayle's draft issues were a problem not because of what he'd done at the time, but because of his explanations. Clinton had said, what matters is not what you did. What matters is just level with us and tell us exactly what it is that you did. Bob Kerry started after a while campaigning with his old war buddies to keep the story in the news. At this point, Clinton said, I felt like a turd in the well. George Stephanopoulos, who was Clinton's communications director for that campaign, thought after the draft stories came out, he said, that's it. We're done. Clinton responded to this second crisis as he had the first one, which was to engage in an absolute tornado of campaign activity. He promised that he would fight till the last dog dies, which is to show through his effort and through his campaigning the talents that are on the other end of that scale, of that teeter-totter. On the one hand, you have the slick willy and the extramarital affairs and the not being truthful about the draft. But on the other end of the teeter-totter, you have this person who will throw himself into fighting for regular middle-class people. And so he was showing how he could do that in the face of these charges. He campaigned 18 hours a day, showing up on television shows, standing for hours at shopping malls, shaking every hand he could reach, his voice getting shredded, his face kind of ballooning and getting red. He, he showed in his entire body how he was going to just leave it all on the field. And when he finished this process of fighting back against these charges, he ended up losing to Paul Tsongas, 33 to 24. But you'll remember that New Hampshire has always been about expectations and not about outcomes. So in 1972, Muskie, you'll remember when he cried in the snow, or did he? Muskie actually won the New Hampshire primary, but it was seen as a loss because McGovern did better than expected. Johnson won in 1968, but clean Gene McCarthy got much closer to an incumbent president than he was supposed to, so it was seen as a death blow to Johnson. So even though Clinton had been ahead by 12 points at the beginning of our story, three weeks before the vote, and then he lost by 10 points, so a 22-point difference, he was nevertheless able to spin this as a victory. And afterward... It became a two-man race between Clinton and Songus. The others didn't have the money to continue, which is the kind of thing that used to happen in the pre-Super PAC age. If you didn't have money, that was it. You couldn't have just one wealthy backer to keep you alive. It then became a Clinton versus Songus battle that started in the South, which was the natural spot for Clinton as an Arkansas governor. And then Clinton used his money and his talent as a campaigner to wallop Songus. Songus disappears as Songus dies. Jerry Brown of California rises because the Democratic Party is still nervous about Clinton. So there's a little heartbeat in Jerry Brown, but it ends up going away. And so the Clinton victory that leads him to the nomination comes out of New Hampshire. And no moment encapsulates it better than the night of the New Hampshire primary. It's late in the evening. Clinton comes to the microphone after working his heart out in the wake of these allegations about draft dodging and says these famous words. While the evening is young (laughs) and we don't know yet what the final tally will be, 
I think we know enough to say with some certainty that New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistlestop. Send us an email at podcast at slate.com. Or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who always comes in by exceeding expectations. I'll be back in two weeks with more Tales from the Trail here on Whistle Stop. Whistle Stop.